And uh, if you can turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 23. And uh, as, as we said earlier in the, in the service, that next Sunday is Easter Sunday, which is just great. Um, but in order to have the resurrection, you have to have the crucifixion. And so although today is Palm Sunday, I'm not going to preach on about Palm Sunday, I'm going to preach about Good Friday. I'm going to preach about the crucifixion. So the, the cross is so central to everything that we believe as Christians. And I think that um, it is easy to skate over it and go, if you like, from Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday, and almost the cross gets missed out. So I just want us to pause this afternoon and, and look at the cross going to look at one particular account of it, but I believe in this account, the gospel writer Luke paints a picture of the whole of humanity. And so I think there's a challenge in there for each of us. And so I'm going to read Luke chapter 23 and verses 33 to 43. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, that's the soldiers, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by looking on. And even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now there was also an inscription above him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who was hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Let's pray. Oh God, we have just spent time in your presence singing of the glories and the wonder of your cross, the incredible sacrifice that you made on that day. And now as we turn to scripture, would you open it up to us? Would you show us something new in here? Maybe an old truth that has faded a little, but show us something of the glory of the cross. Speak to each of us and change each of us by your spirit. Help me as I preach that I would say words which are helpful 
and anointed by you. God, we ask you to come amongst us as we sit and learn from your word. Amen. I just want to spend a few minutes looking at the story so far, kind of painting the scene, looking in particular at the main characters in here, of which I I think there's quite clearly two, the thief um, who repented and Jesus. And uh, yeah, just want to look at that and then draw out a couple of points. And uh, and then I think we'll finish by worshipping, because I think we will want to. Um, But the, the sentence has been passed. Three men on their way to the cross was a sentence of death for varying misdemeanors we imagine Jesus was certainly not accused of being a robber um, or a thief and that's what these two men were so Luke calls them criminals Matthew and Mark both call him call them robbers John just calls them men but there's the two of them and then there's Jesus And these crosses would have been placed on a hill just outside of Jerusalem. There's a a map uh, which you'll see on the screens. And this site, we don't know exactly where it is, but we we think it's in the top left-hand corner of that diagram, just outside the temple, but certainly on a hill, just outside the walls of Jerusalem. And from that vantage point, if you can call being on a cross a vantage point, you can, could have seen the city spread out below, and you could have seen the, the glorious temple there. Now the way up to that place was, uh, would have been along a thoroughfare. And after sentence was passed, these men, the two robbers and Jesus, would have had to go through the streets and make their way up here. The streets would have been thronging with people because it was Passover weekend. Big party weekend. The next day. And the Roman authorities were not stupid. They knew that this weekend, of all weekends, would be a good one to make the point that misdemeanors and crimes will not be tolerated. And so they make a point of it, a public display of these three men being crucified. And just as with our justice system, there's an element of deterrent um, within our punishments as well as justice, so it was here. They were made to be a point, a public point. And so we read that Jesus had been flogged with whips, probably with little uh, metal bits or stone embedded in the end as he was lashed. He would have been beaten with sticks The crown of thorns would have been rammed onto his head and he would have been bleeding all over the place, weak from loss of blood, dehydration, lack of sleep. Remember, he was arrested the previous evening and and tortured through the night. And then the men were made to carry their crosses up to the place where they would die. Not the whole cross, just the cross beam, the patibulum, the cross piece, that after they've carried it up there, And we know Jesus needed help with that. But after they carried it up there, it would have been lashed to the the tall vertical piece. As it lay on the ground, they'd have lashed the, the cross piece to it. And then they'd have stretched the men out on it. And they would either have tied them tied their hands and their their legs, or we know with Jesus he was nailed through the wrists and through the ankles, not breaking a bone. And then they would have winched these crosses up with the men on and they would have dropped it into the socket that would have held that cross 
vertical. Probably would have been wobbling a bit, probably would have had to hammer in some sort of wooden wedge into the bottom to keep it still. Most crucifixion victims suffocated. That's how they died. They kept lifting themselves up while they could on their legs because they would have been crucified with their legs slightly bent so they had a bit of leverage and they would have pulled themselves up by their arms until they ran out of strength to do that. And once they couldn't do that, that's when they would suffocate. Which is why we read in in one of the accounts that the soldiers come along and break their legs. So they couldn't lift themselves up anymore. So that would hasten the death. So we see three men suspended on crosses, ready to die. In the centre we have Jesus, the so-called saviour of the world, the so-called son of God, the so-called king of the Jews. It's what the plaque above his head would have stated, the crime that he committed would have been above each of the crosses that this is why they were being crucified, again for that public display And for him, it simply read the King of the Jews. Jesus, the embodiment of perfection hanging on a cross. The one in him, in whom no sin could be found and yet hanging there, condemned to die. And to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 53, verse 12, he was numbered with the transgressors. That's why he was there alongside the two thieves. Numbered with the sinners. And those sinners, those thieves, those criminals who had lived a life of crime, now had come the time to pay. We don't know when they were sentenced. Certainly wouldn't have been the night before. That was not legal. But they'd have been living on death row for a while, just waiting for the end to come. And they find themselves crucified alongside the Lord of life. And I think it's these two men who provide a picture for us of the whole of humanity. Absolutely deserving of death because of the things they had done wrong. But with Jesus on display right next to them and they have a choice to make. Now you might think, well, okay, but I'm no thief. Not like that. I've never never stolen anything. Well, the bad news is that every single one of us is a thief. Every single one of us has robbed God. Imagine the scene or the story. You're employed by a company and you're sent to a far-off country to work for that company. And every month they send you your pay packet, your salary, and you draw that money and you live on it gets you your food, gets you your housing, gets you your warmth, gets you whatever you need, your clothes. And at the end of the year, it turns out that actually you weren't working for that company at all. You weren't doing what you should have been doing. You weren't establishing that business in that far-off country. Instead, you've been working for a rival company. Not just a rival company, but one that is actually trying to achieve totally the opposite aims to the company that you're working for. Not only are they taking your business, but in fact, they're trying to systematically destroy everything that you stand for. 
Destroy the work that you're meant to be doing. Undermine all the positive things that your company is meant to be achieving in that nation. That is exactly what we have done. Each of us was created in the image of God for the sole purpose of glorifying him. He pours out his blessings upon us, whether they be material, whether they be the sun shining on us, whatever it is, all good gifts come from him. And yet, we have given our services to the enemy. We have worked for the opposition. We have put ourselves in the hands of the enemy whose aim is to kill and to maim and to destroy and to ruin and to wreck and to dismantle everything that is good and lovely and perfect and wholesome. We have willingly worked in his service. We have dedicated our lives to that. And therefore we have, each of us, robbed God of the glory that was due him. So you see, each of us does deserve to be on that cross because each of us is a thief and deserving of death. And there they hang. And then Luke, uniquely amongst the gospel writers, tells us of this change in the one thief And so, I want to talk about the repentance of the thief. Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27, verses 38 to 44. Some of these words will be familiar from the passage we read in Luke, but there's a slightly different feel to it as well. So verse 38, Matthew 27. At that time, two robbers were crucified with him. Note they were called robbers here. One on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, that's Jesus, wagging their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him if he delights in him. For he said, I am the son of God. Then this bit. The robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. Note that it's both the robbers insulting him with the same words. They were joining in with the crowds, joining in with these rulers who were mocking Jesus. And so the thief that we see repent in the Luke passage, actually he starts his time on the cross hurling abuse at Jesus, joining in with everyone else. And the two of them together just lay into Jesus. And then suddenly, there's a change. And the the one thief says to the other thief in verse 40 in Luke 23, rebuking him, saying, do you not even fear God? 
So what was it? What was it that caused this sudden revelation? This sudden recognition in the thief that he was justly condemned and deserving to die, but this man next to him, this Jesus, had done nothing wrong. That's what he said. He realised that Jesus shouldn't be there. Now maybe, maybe it's because he saw the way Jesus reacted or didn't react to the torrent of abuse that was coming. The, the fact that this mockery, this, this tirade of, of anger, of horrendous things, accusations, mocking, shaking his head, sneering. These are the words which are used in the scriptures from both the soldiers, from the crowds, from the rulers, from the scribes, from the elders, and the two thieves themselves. And yet Jesus doesn't respond to it. He could have got down off the cross. He could have saved himself, but he chose to hang there. You see, the things that were levelled at Jesus, the abuse that was levelled at him, focused mainly on the fact that Jesus was meant to be able to save, but didn't seem able to save. That he was meant to be a king, but he didn't appear very kingly. And the only thing Luke records Jesus saying is that as Jesus is crucified, he says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. To those who are nailing him to that cross, he asks for forgiveness. And so the thief recognises what he is, recognises who Jesus is, rebukes his fellow thief, and then he addresses Jesus. Now, he could have called him any number of things. Any number of things. And we, if, if you read through this passage, I think there's probably five different titles that are used of Jesus just in this passage. But he could have called him the Son of God. He could have called him Master. He could have called him Rabbi or Teacher. could have called him Christ. could have called him the, the, the Lamb could have called him the king of the Jews. The other robber is calling him Christ, the anointed one, that's what that means. But what does this thief say to him? Well, he turns to him and he says, Jesus. Jesus. Jesus means the Lord saves. The thief realised that what he needed at that point was a saviour. And so he addresses Jesus as Jesus, the one who saves. And what does he say to him? He simply begs Jesus to remember him when he comes into his kingdom. Just remember, that's it. Jesus, remember me. Not honour me, not forgive me, not give me a second chance just remember me in this moment the thief's heart is revealed as he recognises his need for salvation and as he flees to the saviour and we see his faith just embryonic just a seed of faith as he says you will be having this future kingdom remember me amazing 
minutes, maybe an hour before, he's been hurling abuse and suddenly, suddenly there's this revelation. And it's bizarre in some ways that, that he, he recognises that this is a king and he doesn't look like a king. Recognising that this is someone who can effect salvation for him and yet he's helpless on a cross. I'll read you the words of Isaiah 53, verse 2. This is talking of Jesus. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. This is who the thief addresses. Surely, surely, the thief's change of heart can only be a work of God. Surely, it can only be that. There's some other things that are amazing about this this turning to Jesus and the fact that Jesus accepts it. It's the fact that the thief leaves it till the last minute. He's on a cross. The only thing left in life for him to do is die. But it shows us, does it not, that it is never, ever too late to turn to Jesus. Never too late. The thief led his whole life in sin. And yet here, at the last, he turns to Jesus. A Puritan said, There is one such case recorded that none need despair, but only one in Scripture that none might presume. That's right, isn't it? It's there, there is hope, and yet we mustn't delay. It gives hope to all of us, for all of us. And it should create a faith in our praying and our witnessing that it is never too late for someone to turn to Jesus. But there's some other things as well. It shows us that we're not saved on the basis of past works in any way, shape or form. Now we know we say that, but do we really, really believe that? Sometimes we find ourselves thinking that, well, maybe you kind of need to show a few good intentions beforehand. You know, show that you're serious about this. There is absolutely nothing that the thief did to get into Jesus' good books. He was a condemned criminal. The world didn't think he was worthy of living. Salvation is in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. That is it. That is it. Not on the basis of past works. But not only that, we're not saved on the basis of future potential either. And we find ourselves in that trap very often. I know I do. That we kind of find ourselves thinking that maybe we've got to make up for the stuff that we've done in the past and we've got to be useful to God and, you know, pay off our debt somehow. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't do good things for him because we're created to do good things for him. However, our salvation is not dependent on that fact. This account surely must destroy that way of thinking. Because what could the thief do? He was saved 
and then he died. That is it. What was the earthly reason for him being saved? There were no works for him to do in the sense that we like to think of that. It was just the sheer grace of the Saviour that saved him. And so that brings me to the second point, that alongside the repentance of the thief, we see the grace of the Saviour. Ah, the grace and the mercy of God. Earlier, we sang, you sang this, mercy so undeserved, that was in one song. In another song we sang, if grace is an ocean, we're all sinking. Isn't that awesome? But the grace and mercy of our God, isn't it absolutely mind-blowing? Now this, in fact, has been on my mind quite a lot over the last few weeks, and not just as I've prepared this, but um, I've kind of realised how much comfort I get from the security of the grace and mercy of God. My grandma died three weeks ago, and her funeral was last week. And there was a phrase in the service which has kind of stuck with me since that point. And maybe, maybe it's said at every funeral service, I don't know. But the vicar said at one point, we now commit her to the mercy of God. Wow. That is all, that is all she has now to cling on to. Whoa. We need to be sure, don't we? We need to be sure where we stand in relation to the mercy of God. It is all about his grace. And so verse 43, what precious words these must have been to that thief. A personal promise from the very lips of Jesus. Truly, I say to you, today, you will be with me in paradise. With Jesus. Is there anything better than that? Can't be, can there? Paul didn't think so. The Apostle Paul. In Philippians, he wrote, to live is Christ. That is pretty good. To die is gain. Wow. I think he knew these words. Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. But just think for a moment. The thief turns and asks to be remembered. And Jesus, the agony that he must have been in, the pain that he was going through that racked his body, the suffering that he had suffered thus far, and the knowledge that he is about to undergo the greatest pain he could ever experience as he is cut off from the Father, forsaken by his heavenly Father. And yet, he is able to utter these words. Every word must have caused a shortness of breath as he gasped for air. Every movement of his body must have been agony. Every word of contempt that is thrown at him, every word of anger and hate poured out from the lips of those he had created and loved must have stung his very soul. And yet, and yet, he is able to turn and give a promise of hope to a desperate, dying robber. He is able to utter words that grabs that thief from the very brink of hell and puts him in the arms of the Father in heaven. And that is the transfer that takes place at this moment. The thief is on a fast track to eternal condemnation and death. 
until, until he pleads for forgiveness, for remembrance. Jesus, remember me. And suddenly, in that instant, his destiny, his future is changed. This is outrageous. Absolutely outrageous. It's the scandal that is the gospel, the offensiveness that is the cross. And I just want to draw a contrast between the way the world viewed the thief and the way Jesus viewed the thief in that moment as he uttered those words. You see, I think that the world was seeking justice for the thief's crimes. That's why he was on the cross. Jesus, we see lavishing forgiveness on him. We see the world counting the thief as the lowest of the low. Let us rid the earth of him. We see Jesus seating him in the heavenly places. We see the world nailing up a record of the crimes that are stacked against him. We see Jesus wiping the slate clean. We see the world humiliating this man by placing him on a cross. We see Jesus honouring him with a place in heaven. We see the world stripping him naked, exposing him to full view in front of the world. We see Jesus clothing him with robes of righteousness and promising him a crown of life. We see the world intending that he is cursed by being crucified and we see Jesus blessing him with an eternal paradise. We see the world giving up any hope of this man being rehabilitated. We see Jesus birthing a new creation in him. And we see the world offering over this thief to the cruelty that man can devise. And we see Jesus welcoming him home into the outstretched arms of the Father. This is grace. This is what is true for each of us. And so, is this scene not a picture of the whole of humanity? Each of us deserves to be on a cross, just like the two thieves. And each of us, therefore, has a choice to make. We either continue to rail at him, hurl abuse at the one who has died for us, or we can flee to him. We can say, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's the choice that we all have to make. And I would encourage you that if you don't know Jesus today, and this is the first time maybe that you have heard this, of what his death on the cross means, then I urge you to turn to him. Talk to someone before you leave today. We would love to pray with you about how you can know Jesus and know this wonderful, marvellous grace that can be yours.